Legal Hour on Drive Live. A very warm welcome to Ludmilla Yamalova, managing partner at HPL Yamalova and Plevka, right here in the hot seat, as usual, to answer any legal questions you might have. Welcome to you, Ludmilla. Good to be here. How are you doing? You had uh, raised a topic that you wanted to discuss this week, inspired by some questions that we had last week, all about the disputes, the issues of disputes between business partners and managers. Can you give us a little perspective on this one, first of all? Indeed. It was definitely inspired by a number of questions that came in during last uh, week's show, but also we've actually handled a few or continuing to handle a few cases of similar nature currently. And so I thought, given what we're going through and which is somewhat reflective of what the industry is experiencing right now, this would, the topic would be topical. Uh, so there is, well, I guess the case scenario is, let's say you have a company and you have three shareholders or two shareholders, and one of the shareholders um, has left the country, and that was one of the questions that we received last week. Uh, what can the remaining shareholders do about the company? So, le- And let's presume that the departing shareholder has left without uh, having any intentions to come back and perhaps might have even stolen money as, as part of uh, the departure. Uh, so what can the departing shareholders do? There is this belief that, especially if the departing shareholder has committed an act or a crime of sorts, such as, for example, embezzling money or, or uh, breaching fiduciary duty, then it would be fairly easy to just to go to the authorities and say, hey, listen, this shareholder stole money and we have proof of, of some sort. Uh, let, please, uh, let's amend the corporate documents and we will replace this shareholder and let's either bring in a new shareholder or divvy up the shares amongst the current or the remaining shareholders. And uh, and logically, it, it may seem like a, a sort of a reasonable solution because obviously when you are on the ground and you're running a business, it's, it's, it's imperative that you don't lose any time, that you have the ability to continue to run the business and also protect the business uh, by virtue of limiting the defaulting shareholders' ability to continue to, for example, either siphon money or mismanage the company, which they can continue to do legally as long as they remain on the license. And cases as such are quite ripe, and obviously this is um, you know, one of the major Explanations because we are, uh, are a nation of, of many expatriates. A lot of people come here and set up businesses and um, halfway through the, through the venture may change their mind and it's very easy to pack your bags and leave because they are not really tied to this country in a sort of a long-term kind of a way. So, I mean, these cases happen, unfortunately, more often than we would like to see them. And, um, uh, and, and unfortunately, there isn't an easy system to deal with them. So, un- unlike popular belief where partners th- uh, think that it's just all they need to do is to go to the authorities and show the authorities, look, we have got email evidence, for example, or even letters or WhatsApp messages uh, showing that this perhaps even shareholder admitted that he siphoned the money or embezzled the money from the company or mismanaged the company. So surely you can do something here to amend the corporate documents to allow, uh, to, to disallow or to prevent uh, the shareholder from hemorrhaging more money from the, uh, for the company or continuing to drive the uh, business into disrepair. Uh, however, this is not at all so simple. It's not really for the regulatory authorities. And when I talk about authorities, I don't mean the courts. I mean the uh, the authorities that license that, that particular company, BDD, or any particular free zone. And so there's that expectation that you go to one of those authorities and they will be able to do something for you. Uh, and unfortunately, they are just regulatory authority and not judicial. And in, in the, an event like this, you can see why this is not just a regulatory matter, and uh, but more judicial. And that is because there's a dispute. There's obviously a dispute between the partners. And irrespective of how black and white you think that dispute is and who is right or wrong, 
or how black and white your evidence uh, there may be to show that the defaulting partner is in fact uh, in the wrong it is it is not the job of the regulatory authorities or the licensing authorities to uh, to correct those wrongs and therefore to amend any corporate documents without proper authority now so the proper authority here would actually be the courts uh, so if shareholders for example would like to amend their corporate documents to uh, to uh, perhaps um, you get rid of the other shareholder. They must file a court case with the courts and submit the documents, whatever they want to submit, as to the reasons why they want to uh, to remove that particular shareholder. But even the, the story doesn't even end, end there, and it is because it is very difficult for the courts to, uh, for example, if for lack of a better word, squeeze the other shareholder out and and either bring in a new shareholder, allow for a new shareholder, or or divvy up the shares amongst the remaining ones. Uh, and that's for a number of reasons, because there's so much more involved in setting up a company. It's perhaps a defaulting shareholder had invested money, and maybe he had invested more money than the remaining shareholders. So the courts are quite uh, quite cautious about taking a share or asset or interest of somebody, somebody else and divvying it up amongst others. So the likely scenario here is, and this is the, the, most, um, the most common outcome, is the courts actually force a company into liquidation. Um, so it is a very drastic solution, and it's quite um, shocking for a lot of partners to find that out because in their minds, especially if they have evidence, it's very easy to show that somebody, that, let's say the other uh, partner was in the wrong. Uh, but unfortunately, there is no other easy recourse. They had to be prepared that this will have to go through the courts. Uh, and in the event it does, that the company will most likely have to be shut down. Is it something that sounds like something that could end up going on for quite some time and really sort of bogging, bog, bogging down the business so that they can't do business without that person? Something that's a long process, maybe. Oh, for sure. And it can be even more complicated if, for example, that one shareholder it also happens to be the manager of the company, which often happens. And as we all know, or the key being, signatory um, or correct. Yeah. And so you're a key, key signatory. And especially if that shareholder may have a majority of the votes. So even through the General Assembly, you can't necessarily even remove that particular, uh, ma- the manager from the company because you need perhaps the majority shareholders to sign off on changing the manager. So... It, it really can be quite complicated, and we're experiencing this right now in, in, in for example, that kind of a contentious uh, scenario, but also less contentious, and that is where a company is closing down. We have right now a client who wants to close down the company. They have two employees. One of the employees is, a, is also uh, a manager in the company, so not a shareholder, but a manager. And so they're trying to, they want to terminate those two employees, and they want to close down the company. But if you terminate the manager on the company you don't you cannot close down the company because somebody has to sign on behalf of the company and until you've put in somebody else to have that authority to represent the company legally you basically have to keep that manager on staff until the company is liquidated I mean, these are things you really have to consider if you're thinking about going into business with somebody, right? Because if it ends this way, it sounds, well, excruciating. Well, indeed, especially if there are debts involved. And we have handled a number of cases like that where the defaulting shareholder has drained the company and incurred debts on behalf of the company and the remaining partners here are stuck to deal with the liabilities that belong to, com- uh, b- belong to the company and as we know a number of liabilities here can be very quickly considered a criminal offense. Uh, we have uh, had a number of cases like this and it's very difficult to uh, to figure out a swift resolution of dispute because in many ways that shareholder continues to be part of the company and very few things can be done without his or her signature. I mean this is the problem as well. When you're a partner 
or there are several partners and you've got to pick up the pieces. There are things that, uh, you know, if somebody embezzles money, those who are left behind have to deal with all of that. Have you seen cases where this has happened where they have to pay back the money or whatever or, you know, whoever's left behind has to deal with all the fallout. It doesn't simply fall on the person who's committed the crime. Uh, for sure, absolutely. And unfortunately, the person who's committed the uh, the crime is usually much better off than everybody else because they have, most of the time they run away either because from some liabilities that they have already incurred here, so they're running away from debt, from, from meeting those liabilities, or they simply take money from the company. And we see a lot of cases like that. Uh, so f- financially, at least, they're much better off than those who are left behind to sweep, uh, sweep behind them. And unfortunately, it's, it's a very difficult and a very painful process. And this is why one of our critical advice that we keep giving to our clients over and over again, and it's probably less, less relevant now than it used to be, and that is, for example, for investing shareholders. There, there used to be a time when there were a lot of investing shareholders and not necessarily active or participating shareholders. So they will invest cash. And they will have a share in the company, but they will not be actively involved in the company. It's a very dangerous practice, and I've seen it backfire too many times. And this is because you have no idea. You lose control of the company. You're not part of of a day, day-to-day operations. And by the time you actually might be alerted that something is wrong, it's it, it could just be too late. Too late. So the, I guess the, the moral of the story is just be very, be very um, scrutinizing in terms of who you partner up with and how you set up your business from the outset. Many people we see are too all too eager to set up a business together uh, and then and, and, and maybe omit thinking about the potential liabilities or what can go wrong until it's too late. 4001 if you've got a question related to this or in fact anything else. Let's try to squeeze one question in Sally just before uh, the news for Miller because they're coming in thick and fast here. Um, what do we got? Yeah so uh, there is one that came in from Sarah asking I signed a con- contract with a real estate agent for one year to show and rent a property. Uh, Can I switch to another agent or do I have to stay with the first one? Okay, so two things. Number one, you need to see if that contract has an exclusivity provision, and that is, uh, are you obligated to only operate or work with this um, this particular agent for the duration of that one year? And that's called an exclusivity provision. And uh, I have seen increasingly um, increasingly the use of that um, of that term in real estate contracts. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is one, but but don't presume that there is one unless there is one. Um, so always first uh, turn to the contract, uh, and then let's say if there is an exclusivity provision, if there isn't one, then you're not obligated to stick with one uh, with one agent. But if there is one, then you need to continue to see whether uh, what obligations are set out for this particular agent. And that is in the event, perhaps you can, uh, you can allege a breach of contract by the agent. That is, let's say, if there's a clear provision that sets out, well, this agent, I'm signing this exclusivity provision and in exchange for that, this agent has to do one, two, three, four, five, has to show, let's say, X number of properties over whatever period of time, has to communicate with me, update me regularly, and so on and so forth. Um, then if, and if these things did not happen, then you could potentially uh, claim breach of contract. However, from experience, I have yet to see a single real estate contract that would include that level of detail. Uh, so if you feel, Sarah, in, in your particular case, just to give you practical advice, if you feel uh, grossly misrepresented uh, and uh, or unrepresented at all, uh, then in, and in your mind, in all fairness, you think that the agent is not uh, keeping up with her or his part of um, the bargain, then you, you have to ultimately take a risk and just hire someone else. And in the event 
uh, in the event uh, that agent, the uh, the first agent, will find out, and the, it's the burden of, uh, is going to be on them for them to challenge that you have uh, that you have breached the contract, and that is they will have to file a case with the court and prove that you've actually breached the contract. One and to also uh, prove uh, what compensation they entitle in connection with your breach of contract, and this is very important because in the UAE under the UAE legal system, we don't really have speculative damages, so you cannot claim future damages. So a lot of times people think, well, listen, there's, the contract has been breached. Clearly, the, this person or that party did not uh, do whatever they were supposed to do by the contract. That's fine. But did you suffer damages? That's an instrumental uh, piece of the puzzle as far as courts are concerned because they will not issue. If, if, you, if you go to court, you need to ask them what you want in, in, in exchange. So, And that is you would want termination of contract. Okay. And do you also want compensation? So to establish compensation, you need to have actually suffered compensation. And in, in Sarah's case, that, that agent would have to show that they have suffered some kind of compensation in order to win in case in court. So practically speaking, Sarah, I don't think it's a very strong case uh, for the agent uh, unless you think that they've done their job and they can show them that way that they've actually done all the work and it's you, the defaulting party. But, you know, in that case, they could establish compensation. But based on your question, it doesn't seem like to be a real threat. Okay, plenty more to come from Ludmilla. Legal Hour on Drive Live. Ludmilla Yamalava is with us, managing partner at Yamalava and Plevka, of course, taking your questions for double zero one. If you have one for her, uh, plenty coming in already. Sally, we had one related to seatbelts. Yeah, we did. Uh, this one says, I understood that as part, as, as per the RTA, kids are not allowed to sit in front, in the front of the car, in the front seats. But this is a really interesting one. How about sitting on a baby seat in the front seat of a two-seater where there's no back seat? What do you do in that situation? Uh, Is that allowed? That's confusing anyway. I love the question (laughs) because I did not know the answer to it. And the short answer is no. And this is pursuant to the new ministerial decree number 177 of 2017, which is one of the reasons why questions came in because it's a fairly recent decree amending a previous decree regarding uh, traffic offenses and in particular addressed a number of elements about uh, safety and and, uh, wearing seatbelts and car seats from children. Uh, so love the question because you think uh, if you have a car seat, then this, you've sort of uh, met all the requirements. However, reading at the law, you can only um, when the um, the provision that talks about car seats and the age and the and the weight of the children uh, has a conjunctive uh, a phrase to it, and that is if the car has back seats. So in other words, whenever we're talking about car seats, that car seat must have back seats. If it does not have back seats, therefore these the provisions about about the the child seat is not relevant because in other words you cannot if you have a sports car and it does not accommodate not only that if it does if it has back seats and if it has back seats that can actually accommodate the right measurement of a, ch- a ca- um, child car seat and that is if a child has to because it's it's the child it must be in the in the car seat if he or she is um, below four years of age but also there is a measurement or the weight requirement so if you want to have a car seat for a child that falls in those categories that car seat the car has to be equipped to actually handle that car seat so even it has back seats but you cannot really comfortably fit and um, the child seat that car is not compatible with um the new with, law with the new law. Correct. So does that mean well, you it's can't compatible with the new law? Is just you cannot you cannot transport your children. That's what I say. You can't you can't take your children in that car. That's right. Legally, yes. So 
Yes. Wow. I don't. So I mean, we had lots of messages in, didn't we, when the law did come in? Was it about a week ago when they updated the laws and in terms of how they were going to fine you on seat belts and uh, you now get fined as a driver if anybody else isn't buckled up in your car, etc. Lots of people concerned about this and asking about child car seats in two-seater cars, as you've just described. But also, what if they get into a taxi or an Uber or a Kareem? You know, what's the law there? Correct. In fact, the law applies to, uh, in particular, there was a separate law that talked about public transportation and taxi in particular. And so there's a question that I have yet to determine the answer to, and that is Uber Kareem. Is that public transport or is that private cars? And so therefore, under which laws do they, do they fall? Uh, but what we do know at this, at least at this point, is that allowing children from... Uh, any of these offenses related children are about 400 dirhams per violation and for when the driver is not wearing a seatbelt it's 400 dirhams plus four black points when the passenger is not wearing a seatbelt that's 400 points so if you take it for example to a taxi driver <coughs> or even Uber uh, then if even if it's the, the driver himself is wearing a seatbelt that the passenger is not they could potentially be uh, fined the 400 dirhams for you know for, for the passenger's violation so it's it's pretty spendy but I don't think this there's anything that's unexpected or unreasonable because we should all be safe. We're talking about safety issues. Indeed. And the other question that came in on that as well, Sally, on the number of seats in the car, mm-hmm. if you remember, was, oh, I've got four children, so what do I do? It doesn't fit four car seats. It's, no, you're not meant to have four children in the back of a car, right? Well, unless you have unless another, big, big yes, car. exactly, yeah. unless you have another row of, of car seats. Again, so the way the provision is described is that you must have car back seats, number one, and those back seats must be compatible with the right size of the car seat for every child. That's why um, you never see parents with a sports car. That's why you always see parents get a bus. with a minivan. <laughs> yeah, the children come along. You've got to get rid of your two-seater. That's it. You heard it here. That's the end of your two- sports car That's life. A, is that your legal advice, Ludmila? Get that rid would of be your a very legal, yes, and it's backed by law. Let's move on to another question here. Lots to get through. Ahmed says, if an agreement states exclusive jurisdiction of Switzerland, but the agreement was signed here in the UAE, can we open a legal case here in this country? A very good question. Yes, in short, you can. Well, but you need to be prepared for the challenge of having a jurisdiction challenged in court here. And that is, for example, let's say if you have the exclusive jurisdiction of Switzerland and um, you file a case here and the other side, obviously, would relying on that jurisdiction clause, uh, would uh, would challenge it. You So much depends on, obviously, your position, but the, certainly a legitimate argument is that, uh, and this is under the UAE federal law, that is, if the, the local courts have original jurisdiction over the dispute, then they have jurisdiction over the dispute. Um, so that's not to say that Switzerland will not have jurisdiction over the same dispute, but certainly the local courts, if they have, uh, if, if jurisdiction could have, or case could have originally been brought before the courts for whatever reason, let's say the property was here, the dispute happened here, the contracts were assigned here, um, then if they have the original jurisdiction, then they have jurisdiction. So in other words, what that means, yes, you can bring a case, you can be prepared for the challenge, but you would most likely prevail because the, you know, under the circumstances you've, ju- you've described, the courts here would be deemed to have had uh, original jurisdiction, but you might also be prepared for a conflicting or competing case filed in Switzerland, and then it's the battle of the two courts and the battle of jurisdiction, and uh, it's, you know, this is a very exciting, although very expensive (laughs) and and painful process for lawyers, (laughs) yes. (laughs) 
We've got uh, many questions to get through, so uh, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, about 15 minutes left with Lude Miller this afternoon. So if you've still got questions, you've got to get them in quick. But this one came in for you, Lude Miller. It's quite detailed from Christopher, saying that after two attempts to evict me, wherein Article 28 and Article 14 protected me, my old landlord finally got it right and gave me a one year's notice of eviction in writing uh, with the reason we, uh, the owner of the property, wish to sell the leased real estate. Uh, I duly accepted without issue and moved out as requested at the end of my tenancy agreement, uh, but he's had two issues since then. He says the owner had bought the property from a bank, uh, and that's the previous landlord, and uh, he's got a letter from that bank stating that ownership has been transferred, including his deposit. And the new landlord who evicted him says he never received that deposit and he will not refund the deposit. And to a get the money uh, for himself from the bank or to B, get proof from the bank that they transferred this deposit to this second landlord and then he'll pay. Uh, the bank won't help uh, because they're saying that the letter should be enough. Uh, he's wondering how he can get his deposit back. Um, and the other issue is that he's got is that the owner evicted him on the premise that he was selling the property. But, and you hear that a lot, uh, it turns out that he didn't and he has immediately released it to someone else uh, for a higher amount, which he couldn't get out of him uh, because of the re-recalculator. What can we he do in this instance? Okay, so this is a loaded question or multiple questions, so let me try to uh, summarize it in, uh, more simply. So, I mean, the, the three, I guess the two parts of the question that are, uh, are, one relates to the deposit, how you get the deposit, and two, the reason for eviction and what can be done. So with regards to the deposit, and we see this quite frequently, in this case, I, you will not like the answer, but basically your, old, your, your best approach, un, unless you want to forget about the deposit, and that ultimately may be your choice after I tell you uh, about your best approach, is to file a case against both parties and that is because what's happening right now it's a dispute between the two parties and that is not you it's be, be, between the two so-called owners I mean previous owner and the current owner uh, one says I paid the other says no so the only way for you to establish this is for them to so-called battle it out in court uh, amongst them between themselves um, so the only the best way for you to do is you file a case against both of them and see who will give you uh, the deposit and it will be the the judge in that case who will determine who should give you the deposit obviously this means it's going to cost you more money and it's going to be more complicated and and um, and and just drawn out um, so you need to from a commercial standpoint you need to assess whether it's um, worth it for you to um, to go down that route because it will it it, it it may not be worth it if the deposit is is insignificant uh, compared to the effort and the money you'll have to spend to pursue this I mean this is why I said so there is definitely legal recourse and it's true and both you can see why both parties um, could be right and that is if the the new owner did not receive the money from the bank and uh, I mean why should they give it to you if they didn't receive it so you can see why how both parties could be right so the only the only party who can determine who should really have the right to uh, the obligation to refund the money will be the court now with regards to the reason for eviction I'm not quite c um, clear on on this scenario or why uh, on the or why we're asking the question in light of 
the fact that the, now there is a new owner. So, I mean, the old owner was the bank. So the old, once the old, old owner is, is gone, then the new owner can do whatever he or she wants to do with the property. So uh, the, um, uh, the reasons for eviction that we talk about, the notice for eviction, only apply to the original party to the lease. And that, that would be the bank in the case we're talking about. So it's not going to be the, um, the old or the new owner. So therefore, the new owner can terminate, so-called terminate the contract uh, on whatever basis because he is a new party to um, this transaction. Um, so therefore, there isn't really much you can do. However, let's pretend, because we do see quite a bit of questions regarding that as well, let's pretend that the old owner actually, or that the, the owner did evict a tenant on the grounds that they were going to either retake the property or resell it and ultimately uh, end up reletting it. Uh, in that case, there is a provision in the Dubai rental law allowing the tenant to bring a case against the uh, landlord and claim compensation. So be prepared to have evidence for compensation, that is the invoice um, to show what you have suffered as a result of this illegal termination. And that usually would include, for example, moving bills and any difference in rent uh, between the properties that you're in right now and the property that you're in before, but make sure that the properties are uh, comparable uh, and whatever other expenses you might have incurred as a result of this. Uh, so you, there is a course of action under the law and cases uh, like that have been, um, have been brought before the rent committee. And if you have enough evidence, they, they have been resolved successfully. Uh, one here that I think will uh, just need a very quick answer. Uh, Majid says, um, I was uh, using a bank, uh, holding some credit cards there, even a loan for a period of time. But now my relationship with the bank is finished. I've paid my loans. I've cancelled my credit cards, etc. Do I legally need or is it worth me getting a no liability letter from the bank to say that everything's cleared? Well, you don't need it unless you need it. So sometimes we've had a request like this, for example, if somebody's applying uh, to uh, to emigrate to a different country or get a residence in a different country, sometimes that country will ask for a letter of no, no, no liability from a bank. So unless you need it, then you don't really need it. Uh, but what you, what I'm more concerned about is a, a case we've seen many, many cases like this and we've had uh, many questions from listeners in the past about when you, you pay off your credit card, you pay off your loan, and you assume that your account is closed. But remember, when you take a credit card or when you take a loan, all of these, uh, uh, I guess, credit lines of credit are secured by a post-data check. And I will not. I will not even begin to tell you how many, uh, how many times I, I people look at me with a blank stare when I t- say that to them because they don't even recall actually issuing these checks. But it's ninety nine percent of the time there were checks. People just don't remember issuing checks whenever you take a credit card or you take a loan. So therefore, the more important exercise here is to actually get copy, get those checks back. And can you do that? Will banks give them back Well, to they you? should. Legally, they should. Okay. But the reality is such that very often by the time you ask for those checks back, they may be just misplaced and banks often cannot find them. So what you want to do in that case, if you recall that you have uh, checks, then you at least you would want to have that liability letter saying that, yes, basically, we, you have no, uh, uh, no debt with us. But it's, it's, it, even that it may not be sufficient because if a bank goes to the, to the, uh, to the bank, basically to the police and reports a bounced check, it's... You know, it's you kind of be, well, at that point you're on the defensive. So the best thing to do is to keep track through. of all the checks that you issue, make copies of them, and if you do have copies of those checks, at least take that those copies and have the bank sign off on that on that document uh, relating to those specific checks that those checks are null and void. That's great advice. More to come on Legal Hour. Of course, you've got a few more minutes to get your questions in. Four double zero one. We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai I one zero three eight FM. 
And we've heard from lots of people this afternoon, uh, Ludmilla. And just very quickly on that uh, point we were talking about on the checks, I then said to you off air, well, how long does a check last? And you made the point that, well, most of them aren't dated and, and therefore there is no expiry, essentially. In fact, yes, I would say 100% of the checks that are given as security are not dated. They're not dated. There is often not an amount and there's not even the party that's um, that's uh, written in the check. So, so basically to, they are <laughs> as good as that form of check. Uh, lasts for lasts, as long as it lasts. Indeed. So to reiterate, Ludmilla advises getting uh, copies of everything and if every cheque you've handed over and making sure you get a letter signing against those. Sally, what else have we got there question-wise? Yeah, Rohit has uh, texted in. He has said uh, that he's purchased uh, an off-plan resale property from a developer three years back. The SPA agreement with payment plan was signed, however, not with the construction progress mentioned in there. Uh, the property was to be handed over a year ago by August of 2016. Uh, the developer is not doing uh, the property registration even after paying 75% of the amount which is over 650,000 dirhams they confirmed selling the property to another developer with liabilities but still uh, they've got his checks uh, the ones that he paid during the SPA DLD and RERA can't help until the property gets registered and he's wondering what rights does he have well, it's actually a very complicated issue because you have two different parties. So the uh, the original party has at least in part transferred ownership to another party. So it's not until we figure out what the relationship is between the two parties and what liabilities or benefits the new owner uh, will accept and how it's going to be done. It's going to be very difficult. You you really the the practical advice that you'll have to just wait. Um, in the meantime, however, some one of the um, uh, primary questions you may want to try to address and that is the registration of the property if you can show that you've actually paid the 4% uh, to the developer to register the property by law they're required to register right away and uh, that's something that at least you can do by uh, submitting your proof uh, to the rent, uh, land department and sometimes they will uh, they will try to mediate the dispute we've seen uh, we've seen them do that and in most cases they will call the developer and, and put some pressure on them to to transfer the money so that they can register the property alternatively if you want to secure your interest in this property and this is a more expensive option but if you do want to secure him the interest in the property you go and you pay the additional four percent right now to the land department and they will register it for you because if you can show them the documents that you've done everything else you have a, an SBA and and the, uh, the only thing that has not been ha- has not happened is the property has not been registered with them they will actually register it for you but you need to be prepared the additional four percent so it's an expensive it's an expensive option but it is an option that will allow you to secure the interest in this particular property um, otherwise honestly the best advice is you just need to have you need to wait to see what happens with the new developer uh, and if you don't want to do that the only other option and that option is available to everyone at any point in time is to go to court but when you go to court you just need to uh, you, you need to understand what it is that you'll be arguing in, in this case it sounds like at least one of the theories you'll be arguing arguing is a breach of contract and that is the developer was supposed to finish the property uh, by um, August of last year and they haven't uh, and so you could ask the court to terminate the contract um, the other argument you could make is that they failed to register the contract but actually 
increasingly so that's not really an argument that's raised for uh, by, by private parties it's, it's more of a public order argument and so that wouldn't be your strongest argument but at least failure to deliver property timely is certainly is a substantive argument you can you can um, assert but once again it all depends on the contract because if the contract allows for the developer to extend completion date they may they may not technically yet be in breach and with regards to what to do with the new party you just have to wait and see because at this point it's too premature to make decisions Sally, we've got time for one more. And somebody asking about a visa cancellation issue. This is Modessa. He's saying that after cancellation of my visa, my company uh, needs to buy my ticket for me. And then uh, they said that at the airport, they're going to return his passport after getting the boarding pass. He's saying, I just want my passport. I want to travel as per my own convenience is this legal in short no so no authority can other than government authority and obviously a company who's not a government authority can hold a passport against the passport holders will because and that is because passport is actually property of of the government that issues uh, that passport so the law is and a lot of people will not know that here because the practice that the listener just described is very commonplace here and it used to be much more so than it is today more people are being educated as time goes by and so and including companies so they cease doing these kind of activities but this is very very common still so uh, but legally speaking they are not allowed to hold the passport if uh, against your will so if you want your passport earlier um, then you certainly have the right to it and the way to address it it's easier said than done but actually it's not so difficult you just need to report to the police and most of the time what the police will do is they'll just pick up the phone and call the the party that holds the passport and in the most cases we've seen that gets resolved very quickly when the police gets involved but just as a, as an overarching comment or a takeaway is it actually is illegal in the UAE for anybody else to hold the passport obviously other than government authorities that being court police or um, or uh, you know, immigration authorities one last one here um, no name on this one does gratuity cease to accumulate after 24 years of service in a company no but gratuity cease to accumulate it cannot be more than a cumulative of two years of uh, a full salary so that is let's say after 24 years or if it's after five years your gratuity is calculated in such a way that it, it's more than or it's at least two years of, of uh, worth of salary then at that point, that's the cap. So whether it's 24 years, 44 years, or five years, it's it's depending on how the salary um, is being paid, that it's possible to reach the two years worth of salary much earlier than 24 years. Okay, thanks for that one. That just about wraps it up for Legal Hour this week. Thank you for all your questions. And sorry for those that we couldn't get to. Ludmilla will be back with us next week. So we'll roll over any that we have missed. Uh, thank you to you as ever, Ludmilla, for being with us. Always a pleasure. Ludmilla Yamalova there, managing partner at Yamalova and Plevka. Um, and she'll uh, be back next week.